Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Maggie? I'm sorry, I had myself on mute. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Um, So hello and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. Um, Although today it's it's just Peter with us. John is uh, off doing something in Toronto, I believe. And I'm Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Peter and John are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. Today we're joined by Adam Clark, Associate Professor of Theology at Xavier University. Adam is concerned about our modern economy and its human effects and how consumerism has become our modern religion. He's involved in the Jubilee Forums in Cincinnati, which explore debt forgiveness and inviting people on the margin back from economic exile. He has a very enlightening and imaginative way of thinking about community, faith, and restoring our commitment to the common good. We're glad to have him on the program today. And after Peter and Adam have talked for a while, we'll open up the call. There are two ways you can join. If you dialed in, press star 8 on your phone to be put into a queue. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. And we're very interested in your thoughts and reflections. Leslie Stephen, who is our website manager, is supporting us in the chat room. So today, um, I'll turn it over to Peter now to begin today's conversation. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I want to give context for why I think what Adam is and what he talks about is so important. Uh, There's a whole public conversation about wealth, inequality, social justice, economic justice. There's all kinds of programs. I was a member of the War on Poverty in the 60s, so that war has been going a long time. There's also a great conversation about Black Lives Matter, uh, about the end of racism, the existence of racism, Jim Crow, modern Jim. So all these conversations are swirling around us. (coughs) Most of the work on economic justice has been a failure as far as I can tell. That we've we've declared this war on poverty and now it's growing. Uh, The middle class is disappearing and getting thinner. We're constantly asking, are your children going to be as well off as you are? We're not sure. And so I draw from that that the way we're thinking about um, wealth, poverty, the way we're thinking about people on the margin, the way we think about uh, racism, that whatever way we're thinking about it isn't enough. It's not strong enough, clear enough, uh, powerful enough. And so if we just keep advocating more programs, 
I don't think anything's going to change, even though every single program has a worthwhile intention and does good work and is worth sustaining. Uh, and so when I hear Adam and with Adam and, and, it, and the way he frames the questions of slavery, the way he frames the conversation of Jubilee, the way he talks about consumerism as a modern religion, and here's a theologian, Adam's a theologian of Zayder. Uh, I just find his language and thinking takes me somewhere. It, it, it opens my heart and opens my mind. And so, Adam, I'm thrilled uh, to have you. Uh, much of what we'll be talking about are contained in two videos where I interviewed Adam, and they're eight and ten minutes long, and they can be found on the Abundant Community website. So, well, Adam, welcome. I, uh, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate it. it. Yeah. Where would you like to start? Do you have any sense of what where where a good beginning was would be, or would you like me to name us? Um, well, th that was a great introduction to okay. kind of our contemporary landscape, and I think um, you know maybe a good place to start was just like what stories are we telling ourselves? Like what is the framing story in which we find ourselves in? And I think we find ourselves. And, you know, if we look at our kind of political situation in a narrative of decline, you know, that, that all of our politicians, they're talking about the decline of what's happening here um, in terms of the loss of power um, in the United States, either economic, political, even the Western world is in a narrative of decline. And the context of that, caring about the poor is very difficult because, you know, our civic culture is pierced through, is saturated with fear and mistrust. <laughs> and it's very difficult to kind of, and if you're in an alternative community that's trying to raise the question of how shall we live together, right? Like what, what are the best kind of forms of arrangements and organizations to kind of arrangements to live together? It's a, it's a frightening thought because the instinct with fear is to go tribal. It's to kind of my group, my group, and to really think of a vision to unite us in ways that are um, healthy and holistic is a very challenging countercultural thing to do. And I think this is where Jubilee comes in, is an attempt to try to be a ray of light that pierces through, through the darkness of fear. Wow, so, that's a beautiful beginning. So let's... Uh follow your instincts, I like the, the question you have, which probably frames your work, if not your life, is how should we live together? Yeah. And then how do we unite us in a way that pierces this frame of fear and scarcity? And you're saying Jubilee is a, is a light on that. Why don't you describe your, your notion of Jubilee? Yeah, well, Jubilee is a biblical metaphor. Um, that, that really kind of begins in the Old Testament, and it talks about, you know, it's a period of economic redistribution where slaves are set free, land is returned to its original owners, and debts are forgiven. And those are the kind of three central points of Jubilee being set free, land returned, and, 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 and uh, forgiven debt. And in kind of the Jubilee circle, uh, Part, the focus has been more on the kind of debt forgiveness uh, part of it. Um, and it, even, it, it, and I should add also, if you're talking scripturally, 
um, starts out in the Old Testament, but Jesus picks it up and actually expands the concept of Jubilee in the New Testament by discussing how Jubilee is not just something that happens once periodically, but we should be in a perpetual jubilee. It was originally thought to be reenacted once every 50 years, but Jesus re-envisions it as a perpetual jubilee um, that that we should proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, So, you know, the question becomes, you know, how is God calling us toward new communal possibilities, right, where solidarity with hurting and marginalized people is the litmus test for the world we're coming, we're trying to bring into being, right? Which is shot through with compassion, but it's a truly challenging moment to have that type of language. And part of our challenge is really trying to craft a public language to bring this together, and also, you know, um, practice the certain type of values that would lead us more uh, to rely on one another than to be against one another. So that's. I love that. We are in the business of crafting a public language to bring us together. And that, that, that that's a great insight. We're not in the business of starting more programs, investing more money, mm-hmm. getting better measurements, better management, all that. That's what right. we've been doing. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I like your, I, I like your, because you, you've been a veteran for such a long time, you realize that. That a lot of those options are pretty historically exhausted. Like it's not. It, we have to think bigger. We have to think cosmic, yeah. and not just kind of parochial. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Historically exhausted. It makes them a little bit, bit more noble than my experience. I just think it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but if history is exhausted, then we got to let go of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Come back to. Uh, uh, You know, I'm interested in your ideas about today's world, slaves set free. Talk a little bit about what what that means to you and how you think about what that would look like now. Because we're entering the the 400th anniversary of slavery coming up in three years. Right, yeah. Um, Where does that take you, the idea? If we say, okay, we want to set the slaves free today, where would that take your thinking? Well, we, we, you know, well, just a set of context, the whole idea of Jubilee, I think, was, was I guess, lifted from uh, Pastor Damon Lynch's sermon where he talked about in 1619 was the year he marked the, the kind of narrative origin points when African people were taken to, to the United States through slavery. And then he was thinking, well, what's going to happen in 2019, right? Like, that's 400 years, so we should proclaim that the year of Jubilee. So in terms of that, we're talking about uh, kind of freedom from oppression, and specifically racial oppression, right, in the black community, if we're talking about it from that standpoint. But, you know, oppression is multidimensional, right? It's not just racial oppression. It's also economic oppression, also yeah. psychological oppression. It's also this. So one of the things that I, you know, I introduce in our some of our Jubilee forums is for us to think more, you know, depthly and seriously about um, economic oppression, and specifically not just about trying to make money, but about the ideology. And I called it kind of consumerism, the ideology of consumerism, how that impacts uh, the way we are 
uh, oppressed and that Jubilee should be around, um, or how do we think? I guess it's more of a challenge than kind of a solution, but how do we think about Jubilee in light of the consumerism, or some people might call it a neoliberal ideology or kind of free market idea, which to me functions not just as an ideology on a political level, but as a religious, at a religious level. That I, I even went so far as to call it a, the new religion, or probably the most dominant religion in the world, because it's not just production and exchange if we talk about consumerism. We're talking about you know, how human beings produce meaning for their lives, how they produce their ultimate values, and the certain types of belief systems that we have with consumerism, and the certain types of historical, you know, dispositions we, we actually um, um, function ab- up upon. So when I think about that, that it functions like as a religious, it, as a kind of something that even is more dominant than Christianity and Islam in terms of that, because mm-hmm. of the grand narrative about the meaning of history, right? It's, it's, it, it, it posits a certain type of godlike functions like the market god, which is enshrouded in mystery and has reverence and has certain types of priests that come out at the Federal Reserve and everybody listens to it in terms of that that these are the centers of value and meaning of our culture. And we need to really kind of lay our kind of critical focus on how that operates to kind of enslave all of us. Is there a particular form or way it it infects or enters the black community? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, there are specific ways. I mean, the, you know, well, let, let me start with kind of a grander thing and then get specifically to the black community. It, it's just, our, you know, we are, those of us who study this know that our practices, our consumption, you know, are not sustainable, meaning that we're exhausting all of our resources, we're exhausting the ecology, the planet, and that if we keep consuming at this level, we're not going to really have a, a viable planet. And our, our practices, our consumption are really what some refer to as the politics of disposability, meaning that mm-hmm. that if for us to maintain the certain levels of wealth and power in our side of the world means that we have to make other people on the other side of the world or other side or other side of the, our community disposable because we are going to extract for this. So that's a powerful idea. Yeah, yeah. So if we really are talking about a new set of values that that where where um, each one is sacred, then we have to really try to um, you know undermine this politics of disposability in which our practices lend toward. Right. So in the black community, I think that what's happened, especially with the you know after the civil rights movement, that a lot of it a lot of the focus has been on just trying to lift the barriers so that African-Americans could be on par with whites, right? <laughs> you want parity. Right. <laughs> but what has not happened is a particular white are doing enough, <laughs> that even their models are not healthy models to model, to, to, to sustain. So that's even happened in the developing world 
like what's happening with China and all these other types of emerging nations. Like they're trying to follow the American model. So we need a new model, though. Like it hasn't gone, the critique hasn't gone far enough. And I'm talking about kind of the mainstream critique. There's also been people on the radical margins who have like made these type of critiques uh, before this and have been, you know, sustaining that. But most of the dominant thinking has been about parity, that if we all get, if it, it, it's been trying to, you know, kind of keep up with the Joneses. They're ahead, that they have two cars, we have two cars. They have a bigger house, we got to get, they get a swimming pool, we got to get a swimming pool. So, but no one has really, I should say, it hasn't been, we haven't sufficiently, that's probably a better way of saying it, we haven't sufficiently critiqued the, the very uh, paradigm which, which, start, which started. And, and that's where we need to do some new thinking. We need to think of more, more healthy paradigms for human life. That's beautiful. So, you know, we don't realize that Jones no longer have a car in their garage and a chicken in their pot and living the middle class life. Right, right, Basically, right, right. we say, you want to live up with the Jones family? Well, the Jones are in trouble. And, right. I, was, and what I was thinking, you know, in, uh, in slavery, which began as an economic venture, you know, what was extracted from African Americans was free labor. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you say, every time you extract from the people on the other side, you know, our viability, our way of living then is dependent on some people being poor, on free labor, free minerals, you know, uh, tax breaks on moving to town. And, uh, and what you're saying is equality is no longer a viable goal, that we have to stop the extraction process, which means right. we have to, you know, the politics of disposability is what you're trying to do something about. Right. So. And, uh, and that's an important conversation, especially when you when you say we're crafting a public language, uh, and you you talk on a tape about you know who who tells the story of history, and the priests now they. So talk a little bit. Uh, so this this is about place that for tell me about the land is restored. What comes to your mind when we talk about you know welcoming uh, back in and restoring the land that people once had? How, where does that take you? Yeah, um, that's a that's a kind of an interesting. That's a very radical point. Um, I guess what I think about, especially from an African American perspective, is the kind of I guess subdued conversations about reparations. But people don't like to say reparations because they see it, you know, even um, you know a lot of people on the left because they see it as a divisive issue. So let's just talk about you know repair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because reparations. <laughs> you know, That's good. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about how do we, you know, justice as repair. You know, not just as even Stevie, but how do we repair? Because what happens, you know, Malcolm X, whose birthday was just noted, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, said, look, if a man sticks a knife into my back nine inches and I pull it out six inches, that's not progress, right? Progress, progress is taking all the way out my back, mending the wound, bringing me back to wholeness and health. And kind of the parable of the kind of the African American situation is that yeah, the knife has been lifted a little bit, but it still hasn't been repaired, right? So that if you talk about you know going back to the Jubilee concept, the original owners, 
is that to me that talks about certain a certain type of you know acknowledgement of the wound and a repair of that wound and to think about that not just in terms of verbally but also materially like how do we materially repair the wounds that we've caused so that that to me would be kind of a modern translation of a return to the owners that triggers in me that you know in, in the in the Old Testament land was the productive asset. It wasn't literally an acre. And for me, when I think of uh, land as returned, it's ownership. It's uh, and, uh, the phrase helping people have an economic ownership, ownership of the as- economic assets of a neighborhood. And so what I can imagine is not literally I'm going to give you land. It doesn't literally mean I'm going to write your check. It's just that if we want to create some kind of uh, do something about our economic condition. We have to distribute ownership, and there's ways to do that. There's cooperative kind of ownership. There's communal ownership. There's all kinds of trusts. I mean, this could be done collectively. It's not just saying to somebody, okay, uh, here's some land for you. The land in today's world is really uh, entrepreneurial possibility. Enterprise. Right. So you begin to own things instead of... Uh, you, you tell your turn. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. Like, well, first, let me just say this in terms of the context of this. There's ne- there, there is not an, there is no repayment for what happens to African Americans. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of resources. So let me just start with that <laughs> in terms of that. Like, that the type of life loss, the treasure, the ideas um, in – Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, uh, Between the World and Me, which is a, it's a good read, yeah. he, he uses the, the term plunder to talk about that. He says that one of the things that people like mistake about segregation, they think se- segregation was just separation, racial separation. But it wasn't just separation. It was separation to plunder a community. And plunder is a kind of an analytical concept they use throughout the text to really talk about what's happened like you're extracting resources for centuries, not just during slavery, but during segregation and during redlining districts and also take it for the communities. And we, and then we just marked um, over the Memorial Day weekend also the, um, the noting of uh, uh, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where you had a yeah. black community that was actually bombed by, by whites because of, of – of, of a lot of jealousy and envy that, that were going on there, that you could never get that back. All that kind of intergenerational wealth that was just destroyed through just looting and, you know, taking airplanes. And this is 1921. It's the first American city, uh, you know, that was ever bombed by other Americans. <laughs> it's a black city. So my point being is that you, you, there's, there's not going to be enough material resources to, to totally – so we, we're talking about the approximation – Reinhold Niebuhr said there's two things. There's, there's perfect justice and there's relative justice. <laughs> and what we're talking about here is that we can't reach perfect justice, so we have to talk about relative, that at least approximate what might happen. So I think your idea about control, economic control, is a good one. It's a, it's a helpful way to try to get yeah. there in terms of what does it look like in 2016 to control the resources of your own community. How can right. we actually start that? And that's where we need some thinking about how how to implement that. And we can, we, you know, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, 
aggregate some capital, use it for loans, and aim it at the uncollateralized. Right. And that's yeah. a credential part of our community. It's not all African American. It's Appalachian. It's uh, Latino. It's say, why don't we uh, help that population gain control over their own economic lives? Right. Right. Also, I think. I oh, think okay. you're. I'm tying together what you just said, which are kind of dramatic acts of plunder. But I think the, the religion called the consumer economy is a is a almost more powerful, less because it's less dramatic. But you're saying it's a form of plunder, also, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. It's certainly based upon that, right? Like it's like we're 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 not. I mean, think about we we talk about the native. We haven't mentioned the Native Americans, right? Which <laughs> is we're really talking about. But there's there's so many historical silences, right? I know. In terms of that's, like what we're that's not even so. <laughs> right, right. So 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 I think the fact that the story that we have to have a new. I mean, this is where story becomes really important. Like the story that we tell ourselves. Like we're telling ourselves story like kind of make America great again right like as a, <laughs> like yeah. so that, that that's an appeal to a certain type of power a loss of power and we need to have that but there's what is it but it's based on a kind of mythological notion of American innocence right that America is innocent and therefore it strives to be good and powerful based on innocence but it it, it silences a certain bloody history that precedes the very development. And part of what's happening now where you have so many different voices who are coming in, who are becoming public, is that all these different types of uh, people, communities, are starting to say that, look, we want to be included in the narrative. Right? We want to be publicly acknowledged. So therefore you have this. I mean, sometimes people reduce it to, like, just political correctness or identity politics and that type of thing. And there's certainly, you know, some misuses of that, but also what's really being screamed for is saying a story that includes all of us, right? Like there's a, there's a, there needs to be that because what happens is that people's names aren't aren't recognized within the narrative, and they don't feel part of the collective whole. They're not visible. They're treated as problems that need to be fixed. Right. You know, you, in, the, in the tapes, uh, you, you talk about. Uh, Omnipotence and omnipresence. I, I think those are powerful ideas. I want to mm-hmm. talk a little longer, and then we'll invite people listening into the conversation. Let me give you some things, I, notes I took from your tapes that I just found fascinating. So one is the uh, omnipotence, omnipresence. The other is that the uh, the Bible, in a sense, uh, is really uh, how real estate. You know, it's a real estate document. And then. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I say, say something about that. I just, you know, you say something like that. And I think I know it's true, and I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, well, what I, what I was talking about, I was talking about how how religion, how consumerism is a religion, and how right. it posits a market god that is um, omnipotent, meaning that it defines what is real. It has the power to make something out of nothing, just like any monotheistic faith. Therefore, anything can be bought has a sticker price, air, water, land, bodies, souls, minds, <laughs> right? 
right? So they can talk about real. They also can talk about unreal. Like if your story, again, the market guy can say your story is unreal because there's no value in it, right? There's no material value. So it can silence people as well. (laughs) So that's what I mean. That's one of the things about uh, the omnipotence of this, this thing and omnipresence, meaning that it's not, you know, historically religions are, are attached to a sense of place, a sacred place. Like if you go, right. you know, Christianity is in Jerusalem and you have Mecca. Yeah, it's a homeland. Right. right. But, you know, what's, what's so kind of, you know, remarkable about the consumer religion is that it's not attached to any place. It's all mm. over that. Any place is interchangeable. So that it, it really prefers homogenized global culture. With wow. few, because particularity is inconvenient. So therefore, like Cincinnati is going to look like Cleveland, and Cleveland is going to look like Columbus, and Columbus is going to look like Chicago. Like everything's going to look the same because all the malls are going to be the same, all the chain stores are going to be the same. So, that, so that the religion is something that thrives in in, in homogenizing global culture, and that it doesn't allow for the distinction, and and also. It punishes people. It can excommunicate you, right? Like things like North Korea can be excommunicated from the idea of global culture. <laughs> or like Iran, if it doesn't, you know, follow the agreement. So builds the a wall. Is, yes, it builds a wall. It can, like, lock you out through policy of all these international agreements. So, and, and 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 finally, your last point about real estate. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fancy name for communion in um, kind of theological parlance. It's called transubstantiation, right? It's kind of a, it's a big word. But all that means is that when you take communion, the wine and the bread become vehicles for the holy, right? Like the wine and the bread within Christianity are seen as vehicles to express what's holy. And what I said in terms of the way the market religion functions as a religion is that land becomes a vehicle for what's holy in the market religion, which is real estate property. (laughs) So that (laughs) land (laughs) is not like it's, it becomes sacred in the market economy way, meaning it becomes property, real estate. Oh, yeah. Independent of that. That's so powerful. The other thing, and I want to stop in a second, but you said in the commodification, everywhere you go is the same. There is no place that has a memory or an identity. Uh, In a way, it's comfort. It's Holiday Inn saying, you know, uh, come to us, because every every Holiday Inn is exactly the same. Yes. And you said particularity, uniqueness, identity is inconvenient. Just a yeah. powerful Let me pause here for a second. Uh, Maggie, how about inviting people in to make comments on the chat or to call in? Sure. Um, yes, we would love to hear what you're thinking and your reactions and any questions you have for Adam or for Peter. Um, you can um, write those into the chat window. Or if you've dialed in, you can press star 8 on your phone and uh I will acknowledge that that you've called in and invite you in for the converse, into the conversation. 
All right, so star eight, give us a call. I've got another question for Adam while people are either type chatting in or calling in. Another thing I, I thought was powerful, and, and this is where I think uh, race doesn't matter. It says to act, we act as if spending is a means to happiness. And oh, oh. part of the part of the religion, part of our oh. being seduced is that now the consumer uh, world has defined what constitutes happiness, or even happiness is a worthy goal. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, consumerism as a way of life is a goal that becomes personal personal happiness and pleasure, right? Like so, the goal is of personal happiness and pleasure is like the goal. So. It, it promotes the belief that ownership of things require spending money so that to be happy, you have to spend, spend, spend. So you're in a constant kind of practice, activity of consumerism. Even, and, and there's really, you know, no end to this. Like there's no, like, there's no limit. To, to how much consumption. There's no upper end to it. Well, there's Just no spend, there's spend, no. Spend. There's no the such thing as customers. There's no such thing as customer satisfaction. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Every the moment act- that I buy something, I go home and I say, "I want another one or a bigger one." <laughs> right, right. The act. See, it's because it's the activity itself. It's not the thing itself. It's the activity of consumption, which is being uh, defined right here. Really so you're in a constant. You're constantly anxious about the next, the more. And we don't see that as a modern de- disease. It's like a disease of affluence. It's a disease of the more. And we're never happy. We're never happy. So, um, but, you know, and we need, like, kind of pills or all these recreations to offset this kind of disappointment and unhappiness with this. And we don't realize we're caught in a certain thing that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work for us, really. And that's what the, the, the real whole thing is that these stories that we tell ourselves that we're caught in, they don't make us safe or happy, right? Like, they, they, they really don't, and they kind of devalue, you know, our traditional institutions and our traditional ways of kind of looking at our, and our, even our ancient wisdom. Like, uh, you know, I'm at a university, and universities used to be placed to kind of cultivate human beings and think, but now they become, you know, if you ask a student, like, why did you come to college? Don't say to get a job. So they treat the university like it's a job placement program, not as a place to cultivate the intellect and the soul, right? So we don't have that sensibility anymore, and it's getting less and less of place. Like they just earning a degree is more important than learning itself. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, and, and it's it's kind of fearful because you have people who have the the ability and the means to to go to college, but the kind of dominant, you know, consumer ideology they have is that, you know, the idea of success in making it has really little to do with how much you learn or how much you grow. It has to do with how much you have. Maybe the uh, the big issue of college debt isn't that the young people have so much debt. It's just that they didn't feel they got anything of value for it and, uh, and yeah. they can't find yeah. a job. If I go to, go to college to get a job, you know, it wasn't there, and uh, even though they're still advertising. Now, if somebody has a question, Adam, let me read this. It says, can you address community as being simply anthropocentric 
In what ways is place grounded in our connection to the non-human as also community? Wow, that's a real, that's a very good question. Um, that's, that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we do have to expand our, our, our idea of community, um, especially in light of our kind of ecological degradation degradation and really think about uh you know ecology in the way that we are uh interconnected um the pope just came out well not just last june i think came out with an encyclical talking about our common home and he calls for a new integral ecology meaning that we cannot survive thinking of our lives apart from the ecological world. They are inseparably related. Mm-hmm. Um, and Africans thought, thought they called the community of life, that we have to think of life as, as communal in orientation and that we have to think about the interrelatedness of all things, not just all humans mm-hmm. in terms of that. And that's a big you know, picture, kind of macro view of things. And what's happening now is that our kind of our sensibilities run just so counter, and our culture runs so counter to that to that sense. Um, it's very difficult to have people who I'll, I'll take one example. We don't even know what real food is anymore, right? Like even what we eat. <laughs> if I give people the difference between like orange juice and like, you know, from a carton and the fresh squeezed orange juice like a kid, they, they won't know the difference or grape juice or anything like that. Like we don't know. So what happens is that we, we're so much into process. We're so much into um, kind of the, the spectacle of, of, of vision that we don't have real encounters with each other and with, our, our, and with nature. So I think part of what we need to do is have real encounters. We don't encounter each other. We encounter each other through screens, through this. We don't even have face-to-face encounters with people anymore. So our capacity for encounter has been degraded. And part of what we need to do is to have real encounters. And that's what our educational and religious institutions need to work on. That's great. Thank you. Let me uh, ask Maggie, is any, any, anybody in line to call or talk to us, hopefully? Uh, not Well, not yet, Peter, but several um, have joined on the telephone, so I'd like to um, just mention if you would like to talk to uh, Adam and to Peter, please press star 8 on your phone and and I can unmute you. Thank you. That would be great. And, you know, if you don't need a question, you can just have a thought or what stripes you about this conversation, anything. It's just if your voice with star H joins us, it will take us in a direction that would be helpful for everybody. So that's that's my uh, request. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, I'm going to keep on things that's, that are striking me until we get some more comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're, what, you're, what you're saying is that the consumer ideology uh, without customer satisfaction, with the commodification of land, of, of uh, it's a question of what are we fighting for? Mm-hmm. And, I, and uh, I, I'm just going to say some things, and you pick up on them. Uh, wait, and then let, let's hold this for a minute. Because, uh, we do have one person calling. Maggie, can you put a light, put them on? Sure. Can you hear me? 
I Hello, can't Peter, we hear you. Welcome. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is Peter bomb here. You can hear me. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, the comment I wanted to make uh, is the uh, the general atmosphere of this conversation. I think that we are dealing here with an individual whose focus is is uh, his soul is somewhere else besides himself. It's on another human being, and I think to go around in the world, uh, not just looking at yourself not just being concerned with yourself, but to being actually focused on someone else or on people in general is an unusual experience. It's the opposite of consumerism, and uh, it's in a feeling that pervades all of these conversations. And I think it is a, it's a place to come to, to get some comfort, you might say, to feel uh, heard, to feel acknowledged as a human being. There's somebody there uh, who cares about somebody else, that feeling of focusing on the other, on the dialogue with another human being is a marvelous experience that is pervasive in all of these conversations. And it is like going to another country and feeling at home. So may I contribute that? Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you very much. Again, uh, you want to reflect on that, Adam? Yeah, um, I think the uh, yeah we are too self-focused, and I think one of the challenges is to you know P- Pedro Rupe, who was a superior general of the Jesuits, talked about that what the challenges of our kind of contemporary world is to be a person for others, right? Like it's not that we're a person for ourselves, but be a person for our others, and even in the Bible. It's about love, love God and neighbor. They're they're they are they are um, in, interlinked. Matter of fact, we show how much we love God through love for neighbor, right? Which it, it which takes us out of our kind of uh, narcissistic focus on self, and really takes us to like caring for the other. So you know, I think those sensibilities are really within our traditions, but they're. They're countercultural sensibilities, right? They're not. They're not sensibilities. They're not the dominant sensibilities of our culture, and that's part of what we have. The forums and we have these kind of institutions is to form these counter scripts, um, which are certain spaces where we could develop and cultivate these new models of community, and hopefully that where we start, you know, having these contrast communities, you know, at a at a kind of a micro level, that. You know, we could keep forming and forming and form like a critical counter, critical culture, which can transform the dominant culture in and of itself. But we need to start where we are and not worry about or not be overly concerned about what other people are not doing, but just focus on what we are going to do. Yeah, and do it together. Uh, Maggie, and it informs me there's another call. Why don't we put them on, Maggie? Sure. Hi, and welcome. Hi, Adam and Kelly Prather. I really enjoyed the conversation. And in terms of consumerism, I think that, you know, my reference point um, with anything I normally do is that uh, less is more. Unfortunately, you know, when you think about consumerism, we're living in an era where, you know, individuals are looking at um, more, you know, instead of less. Um, You know, they just want to consume, 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 and they're never happy. 
you know, no matter how much they acquire, it's still not enough. So, you know, I do believe that less is still more, um, even though, you know, we're dealing with the issues that we're dealing with. And in terms of uh, individuals who have to be acknowledged and upfront, I apologize if the background is a little noisy. I am um, in a, an abuse of mine, but um, in terms of having to be noticed all the time. I believe that the individuals who do more work are actually the ones who work behind the scenes. And the, the faces um, who are in the public, those are the individuals who, you know, who just have to have the acknowledgement. But unfortunately, they're not doing the work. So I think that if we focus on self-less and community more, then we'll be better overall. But I did really enjoy the conversation. So I just wanted to offer that comment. It's, it's Kelly, great. Are, you, are you a Kelly? Uh, we go to church together, Kelly? Yes, we go to church together. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I couldn't I hear the last name. It was a little clear. How you doing, Kelly? I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. So I'm here, and I, I listen to every minute of what you and Peter say. You two are my favorite. You're two of my favorite people. So <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Thank you. so okay. she, she, she's got a name for your next book, you know, Selfless Community More. <laughs> Selfless. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that reflection you have on what Kelly said, Dan. Oh, you know, I think Kelly is right on point. I mean, it, 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 this seems to be a running theme. And it's actually not just a theme or a contemporary world. This is an ancient theme that goes back to the, kind of the origins of, of especially in our, our modern society. I mean, part of this happens when the break with the martyr, and you know, I don't want to get so, so academic, but the, there's a guy named Rene Descartes. <laughs> I think, yeah. therefore, I am, right? Like the Cartesian model of what a human being is, that a human being is primarily thought, right? So that reduction of our humanity to what we think, not what we feel or not other kind of sensibilities, but the thinking has been that everything is subordinate to reason, right? So that all of the kind of the Western thinking has been about the – idea of enlightened self-interest, right? Yeah. Like it's rational to go into your, to, to follow your self-interest. And there is a certain type of common sense logic to that throughout all of kind of Western development through these models of Adam Smith, the economic models, the political models. But now we're coming to a point where that's being historically exhausted and we're starting to realize that, that we live in scarcity. We live with lots of limitations and we need to think about how are we going to live together in a way without killing each other? Like the idea of enlightened self-interest has not really reduced the problem of war and violence in a way that was originally thought. And we need kind of new kind of framing stories. And one possible model came with King about the story of beloved community, right? He, he based on the biblical idea of the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God going to look like in the modern culture? Well, King had this metaphor about beloved community that we need to support not just associations between people, but loving relationships between people. You know, that, that most of our modern freedoms are defined by not so much freedom to do something, but freedom from something. But the idea is once we get free from something, what are we going to do? 
And the idea was to be, you know, for King was about to be more loving towards our neighbors, being more loving toward our individuals. And loving is not just kind of a personal sentiment where you have to feel good about everybody. That's impossible. But what he meant by this was more a kind of relational aspect. He meant agape love, meaning God's love. I'm going to be loving toward my neighbor because of God's love toward them. That means be respectful. That means be honest. That means be truthful. That means actually be fair and generous and that kind of thing. But it doesn't always have to mean that you have to have some type of personal good feeling. And I think that's what gets us stuck, that we have this kind of romantic notion about that. But well, we get trapped in ideas of charity and, and, and philanthropy. You know, I think Certainly. that's why economics of compassion, the jubilee forms, things we're doing, want to bring an economic dimension of what a beloved community is about. And, and a beloved community is where everybody has some control over their economic lives and participates in the economy. And that's, that's what's mm-hmm. never happened. There's one other idea. Uh, I know when Walter Brueggemann talks about the Jews took them 400 years to go swimming or cross the river, uh, part of it is they couldn't imagine an alternative world. And I know you, you comment on the slavery of the imagination. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll bring you back to kind of a biblical story. In Exodus, in, in Exodus um, once Moses took the Hebrews out of kind of the slavery of Pharaoh, what he started to realize when they were in the wilderness is that it wasn't just that Pharaoh externally enslaved them, that Egypt wasn't just something they ran from. Egypt was in them. So it took mm-hmm. them 40 years in the wilderness <laughs> to actually get to their promised land because empire was still a part of them. And what happens during any type of certain type of slavery is that we underestimate the psychological weight of being a slave for so long. So yes. that the idea that's happening now, we live in a world where it's easier to imagine what a nuclear disaster looks like than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right, or consumerism. <laughs> we can't even imagine what that would look like, yes. right? So we're... <laughs> We're in a place now where it's harder, especially if you're on the progressive side, to kind of imagine what an alternative, a viable alternative would look like, right. that it is the matter of the end of existence itself. And that's because we don't really have, like, prominent resources that are um, spurring our imagination to think in alternative ways. So the kind of slavery that's so, 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 that's so depthful is not the external change on us, which is, you know, bad enough, but it's really the, the kind of moral, spiritual change in our heart and soul. So we have one more, one more caller, and then we're getting near the end. But, Mika, why don't you, uh, if you're there, why don't you uh, speak to us? Maggie, we have somebody on I, I I did. I just unmuted. Hello? Hello? Sorry. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. So my comment um, is just about the idea of the co- cooperative economics. Um, and if anyone can speak to the basic concept of something like um, how a community blends works in our community. And I know Xavier, I think, had something to do with that. And so if these are successful models, um, how can we duplicate more of those? Exactly. I think that's a great question. I, and I do think in terms of saying how do we help the people in the margin, have an ownership 
stake in their communities. The cooperative model is very realistic. And uh, Adam, you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I, you know, I missed the first part of the question. She said something about cooperatives that was kind of muggy about my head. Yeah, the, the idea of just cooperative economics. And I know that, there, for example, Community Blends, which is right on Montgomery Road in Evanston. Um, and if you could just speak to how that concept works. Wow. You know, you're, 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 I think Peter's much stronger on the specifics, but in general, like the idea, you know, of, of wealth sharing, you know, is something that's, that's both like something, you know, in, in the Bible, I like to tell people, like in the Bible, you know, preachers like to say 10%, give 10% of, you know, for tithing and that type of thing. But actually, if you look at the New Testament Community Acts, it was all of their possessions. They were trying to form a new community, not just like form a quote-unquote church. So the idea of wealth sharing has been like a kind of deep biblical principle, and Jubilee kind of fits in line with that. But in terms of our modern-day kind of thinking about wealth, you know, you know, I think you're much more familiar with like community blend of those kind and those um, co-ops than I am. I think the I would tie that to the slavery of the imagination, and we we think if we're going to help people on the margin, we need to do it through charity, through philanthropy. We need to lift them up. I'm, I I I I want to imagine a world where poverty and, and poor are no longer in our vocabulary. Because what you said earlier, I was thinking, you know, we not only commodify real estate, but we also commodify people when we describe them according to their average average annual income. Right, right. I'm yeah, trying yeah. never to call or think of people as being poor again, because as soon as I use that word, it means they're broken. It means they right. failed in the consumer world. And uh, and I think you're you're a whole different thing. Thank you, Mika. We have to close now, but I want to ask you, uh, help us with one more word, which is repentance, because I think the way you think about that is very valuable, and then we'll we'll be done. Could you do that, Adam? Yeah, I will. Um, you know, the way I think about it is that it, the, the starting point for any type of radical change has to start with a deep repentance, a kind of acknowledgement. And repentance is not so much just feeling sorry, but it's a turning away from, right? We have to acknowledge where we're at that we have not been doing all the things we should be doing to kind of create the community that would be well-pleasing. So that repentance is an acknowledgement of that and also a turning away from those practices and trying to turn towards something bigger, beautiful, and more grander that we want to, that we want and deserve. So that repentance to me is the starting point of trans, trans, transformation um, you know, in the Bible, they talk about discipleship. And discipleship, all that means is, is, is a learning of a way of life. Like, you know, most of us are disciples of the consumer, of, of the religion of consumerism. Like, we've learned this type of way of life, and we've learned it very well. What's the next way of life that we're going to be discipled into? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of Christianity, we talk about the kingdom of God, or we talk about beloved community. Are we going to be discipled into it? It's not something that is just natural, we're just kind of born, or we have instincts for it. We have to be discipled into that. You know, we need people who are going to be models and leaders and exemplars of that, that we need to lift up in order to to, to, to enter into a new story. And that's why we have, like, leaders and sages and, and people and models to do that. And, you know, we don't have to do it all at once, but I think, you know, from mustard seeds, 
break, you know, spring new ways of life. We need to be thankful for the mustard seed and not be discouraged by looking for the big project. So I, I would just reinforce that by saying I think the new models are all around us. We just have to find them. It's not mm-hmm. like we have to even invent them. And I think the discipleship for today could be just to look around and find those models that, that are, are imaginative alternatives. And uh, they're right there. I want to thank you, Adam, uh, with one specific thing I'm grateful for that I also heard. Uh, and that is, uh, I like your kind of action plan. Mm. And I, your your uh, action for you is to think on these things. Mm. And, and I, I think what you do is you activate and shift our thinking in the way you frame things, almost offhand, or someone mm. on a small scale. And I just think that's a great gift. And I thank you so much for this time together. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Maggie, why don't you complete us? Sure. Uh, Well, I think my reaction is, wow. Um, I've got pages of notes from this conversation, and it was uh, quite stimulating. And uh, one of the things that I'm taking away from this is about real encounters with each other. Um, That's very meaningful to me. So, Adam, thank you. Uh, We appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Uh, and well, I'd also like to thank our, our listeners and callers. Um, there was some reference to the Jubilee Forums in Cincinnati. If you'd like to see more about that, um, we've, we've got some recordings on the website, www.restore-commons.com. And we hope you'll join us again next time, uh, which is going to be August 9, with Priscilla Kokorin, former mayor of Branch, Newfoundland, who will talk about discovering the assets of a small town. So until then, please visit our website, www.abundantcommunity.com, and stay in touch with us. And today, um, we've enjoyed this conversation, and we look forward to the future ones. So this brings our program to a close, and thank you for joining us. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.